Chapter 46, The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by D. L. Martin. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 46, Africa, the Land of Mystery Meanwhile, another vast land was becoming of greater importance in the world's history. Africa, as we know it today, can only look back on a history of about 40 years. Within that time, the nations of Europe have agreed to cut it up into pieces, in each of which some European nation rules. Of all that vast continent, only two states are ruled by natives, the Republic of Liberia and Abyssinia. Liberia is the place where slaves who had been set free were allowed to settle down and begin their lives over again in freedom. From 1821 up to about 50 years ago, ships sailed across the ocean from America bringing hundreds of old Negro men and women and children to their new home in that Africa from which their forefathers had been stolen so many years before. The other native state, Abyssinia, is much older, and one of their old stories says that the Queen of Sheba, who visited King Solomon, was a queen of Abyssinia. Since the struggle with Italy, which ended in the terrible defeat of the Italians in 1896, no one has tried to rob the Abyssinians of their independence. In the rest of Africa, Germany and Portugal each have two pieces south of the equator, one on the east and one on the west side. Between them are the South African Union and other states under Great Britain. At Lake Tanganyika, where this country ends is the Congo Free State, which belongs to Belgium. North of the equator, Great Britain has British East Africa and Uganda, stretching up to Egypt, to the west of which is the huge desert land reaching to the west coast and belonging to France. Morocco, Algeria, and Tunis are also under France, Tripoli and the westerly part of Africa under Italy. While there are other strips of land on the west coast belonging to France, Great Britain, and Germany, we must now see how all these lands came to be ruled by the nations of Europe. Although the continent of Africa is about three times as large as Europe, and nearly 200 times the size of England and Wales, and has a huge number of people living in it, it is a land of mystery. Part of it, indeed, is called the Dark Continent, but in many ways the whole is dark. There is so little known of it, so much that can never be known. The people who first lived in Africa were probably a small black race, and many of this sort of people still live in the part of Africa farthest from the sea. The parts we know best are the parts near the sea. Besides Egypt, the northern sea states, Morocco, Tunis, and Tripoli, which were called Barbary from the Barber people who lived there, were the only places which people knew much about before the 16th century. 
We have seen how the Arabs conquered Egypt in the 7th century and then pushed their way along the North African coastlands and on into Spain. But after the Moorish power was ended in Spain, Barbary, except Morocco, was taken by the Spaniards at the beginning of the 16th century. But it never really became Spanish, and almost immediately afterwards, Algeria, Tunis, and Tripoli were taken by the Turks, who had also now conquered Egypt. Morocco alone remained independent, and some of the Moors from that state journeyed south as far as Timbuktu. The Barbary Pirates But the Turks have always seemed to stop the growth of the lands they have conquered, and the only thing that shows that these states were alive until the 19th century was the bands of pirates who sailed out in their swift low boats and attacked any ship which was not well protected with guns. The pirates were quite fearless, and even when the French and English joined against them, they could not conquer them at first. They were not always only people from Barbary. Men from European countries joined them, too, now and then. They not only attacked ships, sometimes they would swoop down on a town, kill whoever tried to resist them, and carry other people off and sell them as slaves, or make their friends buy them back for immense ransoms. They often attacked Spain and Sicily and parts of Italy, but even got as far as Ireland sometimes. Of course, if the nations of Europe had really joined to conquer them, they could have done so, but they did not. Tunis was really a pirate state, and pirates ruled the chief coast towns of all these states. Twice in the 19th century, a British fleet attacked Algiers, which was one of their chief strongholds, but they were not really put down until France conquered first Algeria and then Tunis. France now really rules both of these states, though there is a native ruler in Tunisia who governs under the French. The French power has in the last few years been recognized as a chief in Morocco, though Spain is allowed to govern certain parts. For many years in the last century, several European nations wanted to be the chief power in Morocco and Germany was the last to agree to the French ruling there. In 1912, the Italians invaded Tripoli and took it from the Turkish rulers after some fierce fighting. Egypt Egypt has had quite a different past from the Barbary states. When the Arabs took Egypt, it was at first ruled by governors sent by the caliphs, but in time, the governors passed on their power to their sons, and became the real rulers of the country independent of the caliphs. Saladin, against whom Richard I fought in the Crusades, was one of these rulers of Egypt. Many other rulers came after Saladin, but they were often weak men, and in 1517 the Turks conquered Egypt, and they kept it till Napoleon's famous attack on Egypt in 1798. Some years before this, however, a Scotsman named James Bruce, who had had a life filled with strange adventures, had traveled through Egypt. He had spent two years at the court of the pirate rulers of Algiers, and he then traveled through Tunis to Tripoli. He took ships to the island of Crete, but was wrecked and had to swim back to the African shore. 
He had made up his mind to see where the Nile, the great river of Egypt, began. It was not an easy thing he had set himself to do, but he had many things in his favor. He was used to danger. He was taller and bigger than most men, very strong, and very good at sports. He knew several languages well, and also had a little knowledge of how to cure diseases. He arrived in Alexandria in 1768, and was able to make friends with the ruler of Egypt. The country was filled with wild men, but Bruce went among them without fear. He saw the old Egyptian city of Thebes, and went across the desert to Arabia dressed as a Turkish soldier. Then he returned and went to Abyssinia, where everyone was kind to him. He stayed there two years. The king of Abyssinia did not want him to go away, but at last allowed him to, and then Bruce traveled to the place where, not the Nile, but the Blue Nile begins. He had done a great deal, but he had not done what he thought. The White Nile is really the Nile of the ancient peoples, and although he did not find its source, he traveled still further across the desert and found the place where the Blue Nile joins the White Nile, a place which British people will always remember, for there stands Khartoum, where General Gordon died. Poor Bruce, after all his hardships, found that people would not believe his story when he got back to London. Even when he wrote all his adventures down in a book, many people still refused to believe him. He went back very sad to his home in Scotland, but now we know that all he said was true. The End of Egypt's Independence Napoleon's soldiers did not stay long in Egypt. They were driven out by the English and the Turks, and then Mehemet Ali made himself ruler. He was terribly cruel, and when a British army fought against him, he cut off the heads of the soldiers and stuck them on pieces of wood in Alexandria. The strange thing is that after beginning his rule with so much cruelty, he really became a good ruler, and when he died in 1848, all the land along the Nile and the roads by which people traveled were quite safe, even for Christians. It was through the grandson of Mehemet Ali, Ismail, that Egypt lost its independence. He had been to school in France and had there learned many new ways of obtaining and spending money. Eastern people are generally extravagant, but Ismail had become worse through his life in Paris. He found that it was easy for a country to borrow money, and so he got as much as he could. He borrowed so much and so often that at last the great countries of Europe saw that they must interfere if Egypt was ever to pay its debts. But before this, Ismail had done many good things for Egypt. He got Englishmen to teach the Egyptians new ways, and letters were sent by post for the first time in the history of Egypt. He built railways, lighthouses, and telegraphs and the great canal at Suez, through which ships sail on their way to India and Australia, was opened in 1869, six years after he began to rule. In 1875, Egypt was in a very bad state. Ismail had no money, and no one would lend him any more. 
So he sold his part of the profits in the Suez Canal to Great Britain. This made England take an interest in Egyptian money matters, and when the men who were sent to find out how Ismail was spending his money told how great his debts were, an Englishman was put to sea to the collection of all the taxes, and a Frenchman to see that the money was spent wisely. After three years, Ismail tried secretly to stir up rebellions in Cairo, and then the English and French asked the Sultan of Turkey, who was supposed to be Ismail's king, to appoint another ruler for Egypt. This the Sultan did at once, and England and France helped the new ruler to govern Egypt until the Arab soldiers rose in rebellion. The British fleet then attacked Alexandria in 1882, and the English, seeing that they could not conquer the rebellious Arabs in this way alone, made up their minds to send soldiers to Egypt. France refused to send any, and so did Italy, and British soldiers had to do the work alone. England in this way came to be the only nation to help the Khedive, as the ruler of Egypt is called, to govern in peace. Sir Evelyn Baring, who is now Lord Cromer, was the Englishman sent out to represent Great Britain in 1884, and until a few years ago, he remained in Egypt. He was so wise that law and order are everywhere now in Egypt, and the country is rich and prosperous. General Gordon But many Englishmen have lost their lives in making Egypt a greater and better state. The most famous of these was General Gordon. He had fought in the Crimean War and in China before he was sent to Egypt in 1874 to act as governor for the Khedive in the land to the south. He went at once to the country he was to rule and worked hard for six years putting down the slave trade, drawing maps of the unknown country, and learning to know the strange peoples of the desert. He succeeded in this so well that he could make these people do things which no one else could persuade them to do. He was always in great danger. Once a rebellion broke out at a place called Darfur, and Gordon went as fast as he could to put it down. He had only a few soldiers, and when he came near to the rebels, he left his soldiers behind and went with only one man to speak to the rebels. This man he took because he did not know the language of these people. After he had spoken to them for a little time, the rebels went quietly away. He tried to make peace in a war between Egypt and Abyssinia, but was taken prisoner. During each of the last three years of his rule, he had to ride about 3,000 miles on camels or mules, and he was quite tired out when he gave up his command in 1880. He spent a short time in South Africa, paid a visit to Palestine, and then, at the beginning of 1884, was asked by the British government to go out to Egypt once more. When Gordon left Egypt, a man whom he had once had to send away for ruling badly under him had been made governor of the Sudan, as the country south of Egypt is called. Soon his unjust rule made people very angry and an Egyptian who had been ill-treated now rose and got the people to rebel. He said that he himself was the Mahdi, the successor of Mahomed. 
A large army was sent to fight against him, but it was defeated, and hundreds and hundreds of soldiers were killed. Soon the Mahdi became master of nearly the whole of the Sudan except Khartoum, and Great Britain advised the Khedive to give up the Sudan altogether. Gordon was sent to see how the soldiers in the forts scattered over the Sudan could be got away to Egypt without being killed by the Mahdi. He arrived at Khartoum on the 18th of February, and all the natives welcomed him, thinking that he had come to deliver them from the Mahdi. Soon the soldiers of the Mahdi surrounded Khartoum, but not before Gordon had got the women and children safely away. There had been an army not far off at Swakin, but it was taken away, and the forts north of Khartoum were taken, so Gordon was cut off from all help. He had only one other white man with him. The rest were natives. There was not much food in Khartoum, and the fort was not built to stand against a strong attack. Yet the months dragged on, and still he would not surrender. There alone, in the midst of the desert, among men of a different race and religion, he held out, doing, as he said, the best for the honor of his country, waiting and hoping that help would come. On the 5th of January, 1885, the last morsel of food was eaten, and the starving men grew weaker day by day, but would not give in. But the waters of the Nile had risen and broken one of the walls, and when the Mahdi and his followers rushed in on 26th January, the men were too weak to resist. Gordon and many others were killed. I am quite happy, thank God, he had written in a letter which he left behind for his sister. I have tried to do my duty. Two days after his death, the help he had hoped for arrived, but it was too late and many long years were to pass before the Egyptian army, trained and drilled by British officers and helped by British soldiers, was to avenge the death of Gordon. Little by little this army was built up. Step by step it marched forward into the Sudan until Sir Herbert, now Lord Kitchener, felt that it was strong enough to attack the Mahdi's stronghold at Omdurman, two miles north of Khartoum. The followers of the Mahdi fought so bravely that 10,000 were killed before they gave in, but at last the black flag, which used to fly at Omdurman, was captured and sent home to Queen Victoria. The Mahdi's power was destroyed forever. This was in 1898. On Sunday, 4th September, two days after the victory, General Kitchener, with a man from each regiment, crossed the Nile to Khartoum hoisted the flags of Great Britain and Egypt, and held a service in memory of General Gordon on the spot where he died. Since then, Egypt has grown still more prosperous under the direction of Great Britain. A university was founded at Khartoum a few years ago, and the place which was the scene of so terrible a tragedy is now a peaceful and prosperous town. Lord Cromer, resigned his position as representative of Great Britain in 1907, and now Lord Kitchener, who did so much to give Egypt peace and safety, has taken his place. The Explorers So far, only a fringe of Africa has been mentioned. The story of the rest of this huge continent is chiefly the story of the brave men 
who spent their lives in trying to learn something of its mystery. It is strange to think that the explorers who have discovered what is known about Africa, nearly all, and certainly all the greatest, lived within the last hundred years. It is true that in the 15th century, the brave Portuguese sailor Bartholomew Diaz sailed round the Cape of Good Hope and stopped at many places on the coast, and Portuguese missionaries made their way into Abyssinia. And it is also true that the Dutch, two centuries later, settled in Cape Town. But behind these coastlands lay the dark continent, about which the people of Europe knew nothing until the 19th century. Mungo Park One of the first explorers to go to Africa was a young Scottish doctor named Mungo Park. It was only a year after the death of Bruce, who discovered the source of the Blue Nile, that Mungo Park started out to follow the course of the Niger, a river of West Africa. He reached the Gambia River, and having anchored his ship as far up as he could sail, he set out on horseback with a Negro servant and a slave boy. The natives warned him not to travel into the desert, but he went on. He had to make friends with the native chiefs whom he met. Once he had to give up his best coat because a chief liked the yellow buttons so much. He traveled through part of the country where war was going on, and the Negro servant ran away. Mungo Park was taken prisoner and badly treated, but at last got away. But he had no food or drink. When he thought he must surely die, he came at last to the long-sought majestic Niger glittering in the morning sun. He traveled still further, but he was nearly dead from hunger and from the suffering caused by the bites of mosquitoes, and so he sadly turned back. He had followed the great river three hundred miles, and after a few years in England he went out again. Once more he had to go through terrible sufferings. He started with a good many men this time, but many died, and with only seven left he went on, determined to discover the termination of the Niger, or parish, in the attempt. His end was very sad. The little party was sailing down a river when they saw the whole bank covered with natives who shot arrows and threw spears at them, and all but one man, seeing no way of escape, jumped overboard and were drowned. David Livingston It was thirty-six years before the next great explorer went to Africa. This was David Livingston, who was also a Scotsman like Mungo Park. He had had a hard time as a boy. He left school when he was only ten years old and worked for many years in a cotton mill before he was able to go to college to study to become a missionary. He wished to go to China, but when he had studied for a long time and had become a doctor, he was sent out to Africa. This was in 1841. He was 28 years old then, and a strange man to look at. He looked rough, but he was really very gentle, and he was always bubbling over with fun. He traveled great distances on his first journey, his winning manner helping him to make friends with the natives, and he soon made up his mind that he could do most good by traveling as far as possible and handing over the knowledge he had won for others to follow. He had not been in Africa very long before he was attacked by a lion, 
which crushed his arm so that it never really got well. He got married in Africa and still continued his journeys. Sometimes he stayed a little time in one place, and once after he had done this, the whole tribe of people followed him when he went away, because they loved him so much. In 1849, he crossed the great Kalahari Desert and reached Lake Ngami, which he was the first white man to see. This was only one of the many discoveries he made. He reached the Zambezi River in 1851, and later on he made up his mind to follow it, see where it began, and where it entered the sea. It is impossible to tell of all his journeyings how he crossed Africa to the Portuguese town Luanda on the west, and then followed the Zambezi right to the east coast. When he reached Luanda, he was nearly dead. He had suffered terribly from fever, and for many days had had hardly anything to eat. After a short rest, he set off again, always writing down carefully what he had found out, and again he was nearly dead when he reached another Portuguese town on the west. But he left his men there, and two months later had the joy of reaching the place where the Zambezi runs into the sea. After a year in England, he went to Africa again in 1858, and he was very angry when he saw the terrible cruelties of the slave trade. The Arabs who bought and sold the Negroes as slaves treated them worse than beasts. Livingston made up his mind to do all he could to put an end to the slave trade in Africa. Wherever he went, he set the slaves free, but once he had to stand by while Arab traders killed hundreds of women. He had lost the four goats he had taken with him. His medicine chest was stolen, and he could do nothing to help himself. He was not heard of for a long time, and people thought that he must be dead. So a brave man called Henry Morton Stanley was sent out by the owner of a great newspaper to try and find him. When Livingston, worn out, thin from fever and half-starved, reached Ujiji on Lake Tanganyika, what was his joy to find Stanley waiting for him with food and medicine? He seemed to get new life from the meeting and started afresh to find new places. Stanley had to leave him in 1872, and Livingston was never seen again by white men. He traveled from Tanganyika to Benguiolo, but their fever and the terrible disease of dysentery came on again. He grew worse and worse, so that the natives had to carry him. On 27th April, he wrote for the last time in his diary. On 30th April, he could just wind his watch and the next day the natives found him kneeling by the side of his bed, dead. They carried the body and all the dead man's books to the coast, where they could give them into the keeping of white men, for they were anxious to do all they could to show their love and respect for their dead teacher. The body was brought to England and buried in Westminster Abbey. Stanley went out to Africa the next year and discovered the Edward Nyanza, Nyanza is the African name for lake. He went right across the center of the continent. It was the travels of these brave men that made the people of Europe begin to wish to take the land of Africa for themselves. At the beginning of the 19th century, Great Britain got Cape Colony by the Peace of Paris. 
It was a strange people the British had to rule there. The Dutch settlers of the 17th century had married with French Huguenots who came later, and these independent and rather hard men were jealous of the English settlers who now flocked to South Africa. They hated the English for putting an end to slavery and the slave trade, and in 1835 a great number of them moved together, or trekked, as they say in Africa, northwards to Natal, where they founded a republic. But not many years later, Natal was made a British colony, and many pieces of land where the natives were rebellious were added to Cape Colony. Others of the Dutch, or Boers, as they were called, when they settled in Africa, founded the Orange Free State, east of Natal. Great Britain took that in 1848, but gave it back to the Boers to rule six years later. Other Boers settled north of the Orange Free State and founded the Transvaal Republic. But they fought so much with the natives that Great Britain took it from them in 1877. This did not help the English very much, for they had now to struggle with the natives. The warlike Zulus, a very savage tribe, rose under their king, Quechueo, and after defeating the English in one terrible battle, they were beaten in 1880, and Zululand was added to Natal. This was a chance for the Transvaal. They had been afraid of the Zulus before, but now that they were beaten, the Boers rebelled against the English. They soon beat the few British soldiers in South Africa. They had been fighting for years against the natives and knew better than the English how to fight in that country. The British government, while new soldiers were still on the way to South Africa, gave back to the Transvaal the right to govern itself. This looked to the Boers as if Great Britain had been really beaten and they did not take much notice of the conditions on which Great Britain had given them back their independence. It was only a few years later, in 1884, that Germany seized a big piece of Africa, both on the west and east coasts. Gold mines were now discovered in the Transvaal, and gold seekers soon poured in from England. Johannesburg, the town in the center of the district, grew by leaps and bounds. The Boers had always been clever to take advantage of any chance, so they put large taxes on the newcomers, but would not allow them any share in governing the country. But the outlanders, as the Dutch called the newcomers, came by and by to feel very angry against this unjust treatment. The ideal of Cecil Rhodes. There was at this time in South Africa a young man named Cecil Rhodes, who saw all the difficulties. He had gone out to South Africa when he was only 17 because of his delicate health. He soon got sufficient money from gold digging to be able to do what he liked, and his one thought was that all the strange and splendid country he had seen should be for Great Britain. His health grew better, and he went to Oxford to complete his education. But it broke down again, and he was told he had only six months to live. He went back to South Africa and entered the Cape Colony Parliament, and when he was after a time strong enough to go back to Oxford to take his degree, he was already a statesman. He was becoming richer all this time from the Kimberley Diamond Fields. 
He saw the danger of the Transvaal blocking the way to the north and the equal danger that the German colonies on the east and west coasts should meet, and he persuaded the British government to take the huge tract of land called Bechuanaland under its protection. In 1889, he founded a South African company which had great powers over the land now called Rhodesia after Rhodes himself. Rhodesia stretched up to the German colony on the east coast and the Congo Free State. Bechuanaland and Rhodesia kept the way to the north quite open for Great Britain, and Englishmen began to dream of a great belt of land which should unite Egypt with Cape Colony and be all for Great Britain. Rhodes became prime minister or chief man in the government of Cape Colony in 1890. The outlanders were now thoroughly angry about their grievances, and one of them, Dr. Jameson, collected a band of men and tried to get their rights by fighting for them. The Boers easily beat them, and then, after such a short battle, began to think even more badly about the British. The Boers all over South Africa were roused, and at last Sir Alfred Milner was sent to try and make peace between them and the English settlers. President Kruger was then head of the Transvaal, and he flatly refused to make the condition of the outlanders any better. The Boer War No one in Great Britain was expecting trouble when suddenly the Boers demanded things which could not be granted, and in 1899 war broke out between Great Britain and the Transvaal. The Boers were good fighters. They could shoot straight and ride for days without being tired out. There were very few British soldiers in South Africa, and soon they had to retreat to Ladysmith in Natal. Fresh soldiers were at once sent out from England under Sir Redvers Buller. Some of them were sent to Kimberley in the Diamond Fields, and some to help the soldiers in Ladysmith. Others tried to stop the Boers who were invading Cape Colony, but disasters came everywhere. The British soldiers, brave as they were, did not know the country and were easily beaten by the Boers. More soldiers were sent out in 1900, and the great general, Lord Roberts, was sent to lead them with Lord Kitchener, who had avenged Gordon in Egypt as his chief assistant. Soldiers came also from Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Things began to look brighter for the British when, in February, Lord Roberts surrounded the Boer General Cronier at Kudusburg and made him give in. There were 4,000 Boers taken prisoners in this battle on 29th February, and, the day before, Lady Smith had been relieved by Sir Redvers Buller. The British Army, now in the Orange Free State, for all the Boer states were helping the Transvaal, found no resistance, but fever had broken out and many soldiers died. A free state was now taken, and Lord Roberts marched into the Transvaal. The march was made quickly, and sometimes the Boers won in small battles, but in June the last real Boer army was beaten, and President Kruger had fled. The Transvaal was taken, Kruger sailed to Europe, and it was thought the war was over. But for two years, the struggle still went on. The Boers split up their army into small bands and attacked whenever and wherever they could. Lord Roberts had gone back to England, 
and Lord Kitchener built small forts all over the country. There were many small battles, and sometimes still the Boers won. Then at length, in March 1902, the Boers saw they could hold out no longer and went to Pretoria to ask for peace. The agreement was signed on the 21st of May, and the war was at last at an end. Since 1902, the peoples of South Africa have been allowed to govern themselves, and Cape Colony, Natal, the Transvaal, and the Orange Free State have joined together, just as the first colonies in Canada did. There are still some things on which the Boers and the English do not agree, but they are learning to live together in peace, and the Union of South Africa, which is the name of the four colonies, is growing more and more prosperous. A railway from Cairo in Egypt is getting longer every day and will soon meet one from Cape Colony. When the two join, the heart of the dark continent will be robbed of some of its mystery. The settlements of other European nations are also growing, as well as the British colonies north of South Africa, and the natives are learning to trust their white rulers and imitate their ways. End of chapter 46